So we have a really a window of opportunity at the moment because the policymakers and administrators are in this kind of zone of neutral zone without uh, where the ideology of what type of solutions have to be there beforehand doesn't exist. This is the Hidden Power podcast where we are interested in how the world works and how to get it working better. We are your hosts, Ed Straw, my co-host and guest in episode one, and me, Philip Tottenham. In series one, we hear from people working at the leading edge of where governance is attempting to bring about positive change. In this episode, Dr. Brett Tonyarist of the OECD on the sense of powerlessness at the heart of leadership. Perrette is the systems thinking lead at the OECD's Observatory for Public Sector Innovation. She works directly with member countries on their complex problems and, as an active proponent of purpose-driven change in the public sector, collaborates with governments, state-owned enterprises and innovation labs across the world. Now, there are some sound issues on this one, but what she's saying is pertinent to our quest and I think you'll be able to follow regardless. If it's too much, skip on to 10.50 where the conversation continues. Anyway, speaking at the launch of Ed's book, back in April 2020, here's Perrette Tonyarist. So good afternoon to everybody. So I hope you can hear me well. Uh, congratulations to the authors of the book, uh, of all the good work that you have been done in a, a single-timed uh, add-on to the debate on system thinking, and especially in the current crisis. So at the Observatory of Public Sector Innovation at the OECD, we have been working uh, on the issue of system thinking and trying to normalize that in our member countries for the last uh, four years. And uh, uh, to be quite frank, the conversation has changed quite a lot during those uh, four years. So I think we talked to three countries when we started the discussion around system thinking. And now when we are having these issues, then I think that we have all OECD countries on board are at least talking about these uh, topics. And uh, what we see uh, from our work is uh, a lot of uh, kind of different learnings. Uh, but we can see from, we do specifically action-oriented research in countries, so we don't only look into the kind of the cases themselves, so do analysis on system change within our member countries, but also help countries in action-oriented processes to change their procurement systems, their use systems, their other education systems, uh, and try to kind of learn from practice of what is going on in government. And what we have seen in the practice itself in working in Wales, in Scotland, uh, in the UK realm, but also in Finland, in Sweden, uh, in Slovenia and elsewhere, is that there is a really big difference in knowing and knowing. So knowing uh, about the tools or methods of system thinking and the role of kind of systemic issues uh, of problems. So I think that nowadays uh, in the policy circles, you don't find a lot of people who would say that uh, kind of the prevailing uh, policy challenges that we're facing every day are not systemic in, in some way or another. But uh, there is a little kind of really true knowing about the, the fact that these kind of uh, problems are urgent, that we actually need to do something about it. So it's not only about knowing that these are prevailing wicked issues, but actually doing something about it. So knowing and doing are, are very much uh, not connected. 
And in many ways uh, uh, that we have seen in that at least the uh, last three years that we've been working together with governments, with highest level civil servants across our uh, member countries, is that a lot of uh, people in power actually, the most powerful uh, decision makers and leaders, actually feel uh, the most powerless, that they don't feel that they can take on these systems or that tasks are too big or the kind of structures are too ingrained to actually change them. And I think that what is very important, our narrative to develop from the current crisis, is that change is possible. We see it every day. So once we have confronted with the urgency or things that need to change on a daily basis, then decisions and also systemic decisions tend to happen that uh, it's actually possible to do so. And now the question is, do we need to always uh, be in a crisis or get to a, in a climate change form and get our feet wet before we actually start to making those kind of systemic decisions on a daily basis to actually change things? So it is possible to do that. So from our perspective as well, there needs to be an ongoing capacity of systems thinking uh, within our member governments and also in, in policymakers, and it shouldn't be seen as a one-time thing of one-time uh, thing of sense making around the problem or issue. Usually, the problems that you try to solve through system thinking are prevailing ones. Once you solve one issue, another issue emerges. So you actually need to adopt it as one of your core actions. And that's what we are also trying to build capacity within our member countries, not only to come as uh, using system experts in our work from outside, but also build the capacity to continuously look at the prospective. And I think that the current uh, crisis that we are ongoing is highlighting those issues uh, in a, kind of a very visceral way, that uh, the inequalities, the the risk on sustainability, the issues with our housing system, etc., have become more visible than ever. So we have a really a window of opportunity at the moment because the policymakers and administrators are in this kind of zone of neutral zone without uh, where the ideology of what type of solutions have to be there beforehand doesn't exist. So there's a lot of room to actually reframe using system thinking and systems analysis about what the kind of solutions that we actually can and uh, can uh, come up with. And uh, I really would call using the book that you have written as well uh, to use these kind of analysis tools to uh, analyze the kind of uh, the new types of systems that uh, different governments uh, in OECD countries and beyond uh, actually need. And also to probably use the systems analysis to analyze the ex uh, effects of the different solutions that have been adopted uh, throughout this crisis, because we see experiments going on every single day that have systemic effects uh, from uh, basic income experiments to uh, experiments that are infringing on our privacy and have long-term effects that we also need to analyze and evaluate them uh, in some way. And I think that system thinking can be of real value there. So maybe commenting on who the leaders are looking towards. So I think more than ever during this crisis that the leaders are actually looking towards evidence of any sort. So at the current uh, chaotic phase, I think we're looking for solutions anywhere. Uh, but uh, before the actual crisis hit, uh, then I think that uh, I, I concur with Eileen that you will find uh, a more 
kind of uh, first uptake of systems thinking at the lower levels of organizations, uh, because uh, the lower and junior levels of organizations tend to be also closer to the issues and see the kind of the systemic issues on the ground uh, much easier, or to see that they are not that the current system is not making a difference. So it's much easier to make the case than. Uh, than at the top level, leadership level, because the risks of changing uh, on their positions is quite large. But I'm not saying that this is not possible, because uh, usually when there is a will, there's also a way. So our work, you know, work uh, when we start to work with uh, uh, some junior level people from the organization as well, is to build coalitions from the bottom up. So once you have a coalition of uh, critical stakeholders who sh uh, share and talk about an issue or the problem in the same way, using the same language, issues, then it's easier to also uh, high-level decision-makers to come on board. So usually uh, what we see that uh, the high-level leaders tend to listen to the organization themselves. So the organizations and their community have to bring this uh, news to them that things have to be different. Um, we have been using system thinking uh, and they're also good partners in using system thinking in Finland, for example, for uh, family policies, youth policies, but also broader socioeconomic policies. Uh, I think that the climate kick uh, also in the European uh, innovation and technology kind of frame has been doing absolutely great work in framing uh, sustainability and climate change with using system thinking uh, methods and technologies. And there are a lot of actually uh, sectoral approaches that have been used and applied uh, from security systems to uh, uh, climate change to socioeconomic change in different countries. So there are more good examples actually out there than, than we think and hopefully we'll hear more about them uh, in more detail as well. Usually you end up talking about the outcomes, but not the process of how things were done. So more kind of attention should be also put on the process of uh, how system thinking was applied in practice. What we definitely see is that everybody has connected to the word systems and leaders and otherwise always have something in mind when you talk about systems. So when you actually need to create a common language, language right off the bat, so I do a little bit of sense-making or problem-framing uh, to begin with, to actually agree upon when we're talking about the system, what is it, uh, what, what it actually is, so how do we analyze the system or look at the system, uh, because otherwise you talk about apples and oranges, because people, you know, tend to think about the traditional systems or how they think about systems in everyday life, and uh, maybe not uh, the kind of the tools and methods that we use every, every day in our kind of transformation journeys. Wicked issues and time issues. In the 70s, two researchers, Ripple and Weber, produced this work, basically saying you can't address wicked issues in the way in which you address time issues. Time issues you can deal with simply, you can deal with in a systematic way. But if you try and do that with wicked issues, so wicked issues are complex issues, they're hard to solve. They may never have been solved. They've got all sorts of uh, influences and causes. Perrette refers to the powerlessness of leaders. And we've decided to theme this episode around this kind of powerlessness. And I was just wondering, what is power exactly? 
say for somebody like Jeremy <clears throat> Hunt or Boris Johnson for that matter, who's sitting there at a desk working out, for example, whether to use the track and trace app or whether to go with Google and Apple, what do they have at their disposal to try and affect change on the ground? Well, those are very good examples. So put yourself or a listener puts him or herself into that situation. You're, there you are in your office. You've got a range of officials. You're trying to decide what to do. And let's say you decide the answer is to go for an app. And we can come back to how you might have decided that. But let's say you've decided to go for an app. Well, at this point, that's when the difficulties start because there's a huge road to travel or a series of roads to travel before that app is developed, works, and is used and is producing the data that you need for it to be effective. So step one, who are we going to get to develop this app? Well, the civil service typically uh, wedded to going through a process of competitive tendering and you get in a contractor. At this point, the contractor may or may not prove to be a good choice. I mean, quite often it turns out not to be a good choice, but let's say it is a good choice and they go off and they start beavering away. Then they run into difficulties, but then they find that, you know, for whatever reason, they haven't got the capacity or the capability to get this thing together. So that then you try and put in more effort. It may be that the contractor needs to be managed rather more tightly, which is where this classic thing of contract management comes in. Now, I've found that even the Institute for Government has said, well, actually, contract management is important when you're outsourcing and privatizing so much. This was obvious to anyone from the early days of outsourcing that you need people on the client side who are expert and experienced and good at managing contractors. A bit like um, using a quantity surveyor. If, if, if you're building a house, you'd have a quantity surveyor to make sure that the builder is using the prescribed amount of materials and it's all within budget and yeah. within timescale. So it's going also, back to, to Jeremy Hunt then, who's sitting at his desk, what control or what sort of power does he have? He has the power to say, go ahead and, and try this thing out. Yeah, and, and then uh, absolutely. And, that, and then nominally, the machine, uh, the government machine, swings into action and all is well. New Labour came into power with quite a programme and indeed with a huge amount of backing to change a lot of stuff. And if you want to change a tax rate, it's simple, you do it, it's job done. If you want to change a welfare system, a benefit system, that's immensely complicated. As soon as there's a computer system in the way, government's expertise in getting computers to do what you want them to do and getting systems to do what you want them to do, its record is, is generally dreadful. Part of the problem there is the way in which they go about developing computer systems is often this big bang. The NHS IT system in the 2000s was a classic example 
where the system was just so big and so complicated, they threw a huge amount of money at it, that actually it couldn't work. If you take a bank, if it's got any sense and it's going to change its computer systems, it changes a bit at a time. What it doesn't do is say, right, we're going to scrap one system and we're going to start again with another because in those circumstances, you'll probably find that all of the ATM machines crash and no one can get their money. But there is a discipline usually to the way these companies work, that it's their business and their consumers on the end. The problem with government is there's not the same discipline there. You get ideology or you get prejudice or you just get someone, this is what we need to do, this is what we must do. And they charge ahead with no understanding really as to how to develop computer systems. But if you look at power in other ways, I mean, you can change a law. So, okay, here we are, we've got a new law, terrific. You know, this, this is power, isn't it? But, but actually, what is a law? It doesn't actually do anything until that law goes into effect. And the question then is, well, how does it go into effect? And on the one hand, if you take something like the litter laws, right, you know, this should work. Well, hmm. how much impact actually did the littering laws have on littering? In Australia, they went about it in a very different way and did a public education campaign. And that had far more impact than the law. So it's a question of instrument. But the other big flaw in this whole system is that they nominally do all of these things, policies, programs, projects, laws, regulations, statutory instruments, guidance, whatever it might be, but they don't then find out whether they've worked so that the feedback isn't coming in to the centre to say, well, actually, you tried that, jolly good, but actually it's a complete waste of time, complete waste of money, and it's just getting in the way. It's just clogging up the system. All of this is based on the, what I call the end-state fallacy. The end-state fallacy is essentially how the whole of democracy, representative democracy, is triggered. So along comes political party X, political party Y, to an election offering a manifesto. Jolly good. And then we sit there and we think, well, we'll have this lot rather than that lot. So you've chosen this lot and then they come in and they try and put these things into practice. And of course, so often you can't actually policyize something into existence because that's not the way the world works. I mean, housing has been a classic example since the war, where after the war, and this was happening worldwide, new housing is needed. I mean, some of it because it's been bombed to smithereens, some of it because it's slums and, and needs upgrading and so on. So someone in the centre decides to build a load of tower blocks and a load of streets in the sky and so on and so forth, and off we go, they get built. And then what do we discover? Oh, actually, these places are really good for the concentration of poorer people. They're terrific at producing outlaw criminal gangs. They're terrific for becoming a sentence of drug dealing and drug consumption. And these things actually haven't worked. I mean, to the extent that an awful lot of them have been torn down. 
those ones that still exist are still producing this outlaw class. So you turn around and you say, okay, we've got this housing thing. We need new housing. We've tried to policyize housing into existence. But all we've done is create, yeah, people have got four walls, but we've created immense social problems and these ghettos, which even the police won't go into. Now, if you then turn that round and say, well, how should government work if it really wanted to exercise genuine power? Power in the sense of creating beneficial change on the ground. How would you go about that? Well, this whole thing is like actually pretty much most in central government is actually a political experiment. So you'd say, right, let's take an area. Let's work with the people in that area uh, to understand, first of all, the sort of housing they might like to live in and the sort of housing that would create a productive flourishing community, uh, work with architects, planners, designers, and do a small-scale experiment in Manchester, another kind of experiment in Leeds or Middlesbrough, wherever it happens to be, and see how those things work out. There's been a very interesting one recently in Liverpool, in Toxteth, where housing that had been left to be derelict, classic, really solidly built Victorian terraces. And basically what happened is a community group there decided to start doing something about them. The council's plan was that these are all going to get torn down and they were going to have new build. I mean, it was going to be new build terraced housing. At least they were going to throw up tower blocks anymore, but it was going to be new build. And the people living there said, well, look, you know, what's the problem? All these houses are incredibly solid. Actually, if you look at the new stuff you've built, by and large, people prefer the old stuff. They're just better houses. And so they themselves started renovating the houses. On top of that, they set up uh, community groups that started producing small-scale businesses. They set up uh, small-scale local markets. I mean, this thing actually won the Turner Prize at the Tate, curiously. But this whole area is now on the up. Possibly the most important thing in all of this is that the people that live there feel that they, in effect, own that area. They own the solution. And therefore, they're incredibly committed mm. to running it, preserving it, developing it, and so on. It's not something that's been sort of bust in from outside, and there you are, people, you know, off you go and get on with it. You should be happy that you've got... A, an apartment on the 17th story in some concrete monstrosity. But coming back to powerlessness, so, so there you are, the minister is sitting there, and these people, you know, they want to exercise power. And what they cannot understand is that what they need to do is to set up systems, to set up institutions, which then themselves produce beneficial results. And those systems and institutions will often, in terms of the actual doing, be operated, in essence, by local people in various local roles. So it's a curiosity that if you want power, then set up the instruments that are going to produce change, but don't try and do it yourself from the centre.
what you're saying is that the power is in the authorization in the first place, not in the implementation of it. Yeah. I mean, what's going on at present? They're trying to run all the schools from the centre, the whole COVID-19 response. They're trying to do all of that from the centre. And actually, you simply can't. It's too big. It's too complicated. There's too much going on. This is back to Ashby's law. You cannot possibly have enough capacity or knowledge and information at the centre to be able to respond. So what you therefore need to work out is what do you need at a local level in terms of obviously the whole public health apparatus in order to deal with, in this case, COVID-19. And that's your job. And, you know, get out of the way in terms of centralised control. Were there any particular moments when you were in that central zone of government, or or indeed if your brother was in that central zone of government, where you suddenly hit that moment of of looking at the system and thinking, can it really be this dysfunctional? Actually, yes, here's a good example. So what did Blair do? He set up this thing, which the current government are now talking about setting up, the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. Prime Minister Delivery Unit run by a guy called Michael Barber, who'd been working with David Blunkett. So Prime Minister Delivery Unit takes a small number of targets. I mean, one of them might be literacy. One of them might be certain types of crime. One of them might be, I don't know, road building for the sake of argument. And every week, the permanent secretary in each of those departments would come before Michael and Tony Blair, and they would sort of drive, drive, drive towards this target. And it had some effect whilst it was operating. But after a while, needless to say, you know, politicians' attentions wander, they get onto something else, and Tony Blair is not turning up every week to this thing. Then Michael Barber leaves, they get a new person in, and it sort of becomes the sort of thing that we ought to do, and it sort of wandered on for another four years. But the permanent secretaries by now know that actually, well, maybe this week I'll send my deputy along because it doesn't really matter too much. I'm not going to get wrapped over the knuckles by the prime minister. And anyway, we've already got thousand other things to do. So it diminishes And my argument with all of that is that, again, you need the system functioning as a totality. If you need a prime minister's delivery unit, then it demonstrates your system isn't working. Michael Barber went off to McKinsey and basically started selling prime minister's delivery units around the world. Jolly good business. One of the places that he sold them to was Indonesia. Years later, having written my previous book, standard delivered design for successful government in which i tell this story i was giving a lecture to manchester business school global mba students after which one of the guys comes up to me and says well interesting you say that because i worked in the indonesian presidential delivery unit and he said exactly what you said happened that it was working well and then the president left a new one came in He wasn't interested in what we were doing, and the whole program just fell apart. Yeah, it does seem that what that particularly relies on is the conviction of an authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
this is always the case. Any change program that we did at a company, a public agency or whatever, there was a critical rule, I suppose. So as a set of consultants, as a set of change agents, if you're having to put all of the work in to get this program to work and it becomes like pushing water Mm. uphill, it means that you haven't got the commitment from the top. Pret talks about action-oriented learning. Yes. And she mentions uh, building coalitions from the ground up. What does that system look like? I mean, how, how do you go about designing that system? Is that through a, a kind of an action inquiry or how do you start to, mm. to start thinking about those systems? So the first thing we need is absolutely rigorous feedback on what's going on which is produced independently because you can't have politics self-scoring politicians rhetorically massaging statistics which hey presto says oh terrific you know our welfare system is working isn't that wonderful so you know it's, it's a huge hole in pretty much every government machine around the world um, of feedback Now, the feedback then needs to be cybernetic. And what cybernetic means is that something happens as a result of the feedback. So if you've got a thermostat and you set it to 20 degrees centigrade, when it reaches 20 degrees centigrade, the feedback is it's gone over and it turns the boiler off. Mm. Uh, Or indeed, when it goes below, it turns the boiler on. So... In government, we've got feedback. It turns out this particular law or regulation may have been terribly well-intentioned, but it doesn't work or it works badly. Right. So at that point, we need an abandonment program that says, fine, that stops. There may be a need for whatever it is, litter, for the sake of argument, for something to be done about it, but we're going to have to go about it in a different way. The... Second area then in terms of setting up your system is to understand that politics has its limits. So this process, this notion of argument, I mean, essentially that's what politics is. We'll all have a jolly good argument and then sort of whoever wins the argument, well, that's what we're going to do. That's a bit silly, isn't it? Uh, I mean, is that how they got to the moon? You know, is that how we're going to solve climate change? So you've got this politics thing, which has got everywhere. It's like a rash. So you, you then say, okay, well, well, let's take something like schools. You know, is, is this argumentative political process what's required in order to get schooling? up to the best standards that we can, you know, really world-class standards. Well, it turns out that actually if you go to Finland, which has well, it has one of the best schooling systems in the world and certainly in Europe, at the 2015 election, its last election, all of the political parties had an agreed policy for schools between them going into that election. So it wasn't a politicised decision as to what you're going to do about schools. They understood that schools are a collective, vital, important, essential component of a functioning society. And having some fantasy about, oh, if we chuck them all into the private sector and we give people maximum choice and it can operate like a market, 
That's not how you get good schools. So then the question is, uh, how do you get politics out of the way? Well, one of the ways you get politics out of the way is you don't have an adversarial election system where you get this either left or right um, and, you know, ne'er the twain shall meet. Uh, you have uh, a proportional system, which means political parties have to work together. They get used to the notion of working together. They can't indulge their, their weird and wonderful fantasies. Uh, once, once you've got that in place, uh, you, you then say, okay, how does the uh, machinery of government now need to work to get functioning schools in place? You need very good local government. By and large, in the UK, we don't have local government. We have local authorities where 90 to 95% of the decisions are taken either by central government directive and instruction or by local officials. So there isn't that sense of connection between uh, the school and the community and that sense of accountability for the performance of those schools. So you're then starting to construct, I hope you can see, a system that will function to produce the environment in which schools can flourish. There are many other things, of course, that are going on there. And in fact, at this point, the innovation that is possible, the local innovation, and we want local innovation because uh, there are a lot of innovative people locally and it motivates and gives them their head, but also those innovations can then be spread. A teacher works with difficult-to-teach secondary school kids in London. She has found that with online learning, uh, some extraordinary changes. Kids that just weren't engaging at all in school, some of that because they can't read, some of that because some kids, you know, very uncomfortable in classes of 30 and all these people rushing around and actually I'm, I'm a pretty fragile person. So there's a kid at home starting to learn much better because that kid is on his or her own. But then the father gets involved and actually realises that the kid can't read, then actually gets really motivated to work with his kid to learn to read. Then the kid, they're doing two hours a day, the kid is actually going, no, I want to carry on. I want to do more. Because we found the learning environment, which has brought the father in as well, and has got the father committed to this kid's learning, and this kid is flourishing. Mm. Now, I say that in two regards. One is that local innovation, for goodness sake, letting people who we've trained as teachers teach, but also in the sense of schooling generally has to change. You, you know, we're now looking at a very different world where learning can happen in a very different way. Here is one of these ways. How can we incorporate that into our school system? Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Hidden Power podcast. And of course, do please have a look at the show notes. In the next episode, Ed Straw talks about applying a model of inquiry to post-crash analysis to government and spells out a kind of pre-flight checklist for planet Earth. So I hope you'll join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.